Uh, If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and we are going to be on the ninth commandment today. We're doing a series in the Ten Commandments. So we'll be looking at verse 16 together. And uh, it's become kind of a, a poignant thing as we get towards the end of these commandments. I've been reading just the commandment, and then I figure when we, when we do our catechism question, we'll cover all 10 of them, right? So why don't we stand in honor of the reading of God's word, and we're only reading verse 16 of Exodus chapter 20 this morning. And this is the word of the Lord. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord and the ninth commandment. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. All right, so here is that question that you've all been working on. Children, I want you to know, let's just say if you are uh, 12 and under, 12 and under, fifth grade and below, if you are in the children's ministry and Brother Greg is your children's ministry deacon, if you come to me sometime either next Sunday or the following, the 14th or the 21st, and you can say all 10 commandments without help, Pastor Jason is going to give you a $10 bill, all right? That is, uh, that's the deal, okay? So am I motivating you? Am I going to be broke in a couple weeks here? Uh, I don't know, but that's the challenge, okay? So you can come, and uh, maybe if you wanted to, to give with some of that, or maybe you could uh, go get a, some candy, or you could beg your parents to help you put some more towards something else, that's the deal, okay? So here's the question that you have to answer. You ready? Now, this is not just for the kids. This is the adults. I want you to know it too. What is the law of God as stated in the Ten Commandments? You shall have... I feel like that one is solid, okay? Nine weeks in, we've got commandment one together. You shall have no other gods before me. The second one, you shall not make... Yeah, you shall not make for yourselves an idol. Some of you are like, no idolatry, that's fine. But the wording, you shall not make for yourselves an idol. The third question, or the third commandment is you shall not misuse. Yes, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. I heard one over here on my left that got all of that phrase there, Justin. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The fourth commandment, these ones help us because they have a different word, okay? Remember what? Remember Yeah, by by keeping it holy. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And then the next one, the fifth one, honor. Yeah, that's a good one for those kids that are going to be coming. All right, number six, you shall not murder. Yeah, this is where it starts to get a little hairy because they're all just, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Okay, that's number six. Number seven, you shall not. Wow, good job. And then last week we studied, you shall not steal. And then this week we are studying, you shall not give false testimony. And 10th, you shall not covet. All right, so let's keep working on these. That is really, really great work so far. And then in addition to that question, we've been asking a big picture question. Now, for some of you that are a little OCD, I'm a little bit like that. This is going to really... Toast your biscuits, okay? Uh, We are changing question 9 and 10 from the introduction. So if you still have the sermon notes from week one, 
this is out of order. I had them in 9 and 10, and I'm flipping them for a reason. And I hope that reason becomes apparent as we go through the message today. So this was originally question 10. It's now question 9 today. And the question is, what are the three parts of a moral event? Seems kind of complicated, but I think you're going to get it as we go through it today. Three parts of what makes a moral event. And our short answer to that question was this. All genuinely moral events take place at the intersection of right character, conduct, and goals. Character, conduct, and goals. You're going to hear a lot of those three things over the next several minutes. Here's a definition of biblical ethics. Uh, This is uh, David Jones's definition. He says, quote, Biblical ethics is the study and application of the morals prescribed in God's word that pertain to the kind of conduct, character, and goals required of one who professes to be in a redemptive relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You profess to be a believer. You have God's word and what morals are prescribed. It's what character, conduct, and goals. That's what makes up a biblical Ethics. Now, this is not just David Jones's point of view. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote of the three parts of morality. If you were here the first week of the Ten Commandments, I actually briefly mentioned this, and we talked about his ship analogy, right? You've got the ship itself. Is the ship seaworthy? That would be one's character. Like, in and of itself, is it going to pass on, on the seas? Then you have the way the ships in a fleet would interact with one another. Are they going to bang into each other and collide? Which oftentimes would make the other ship not be seaworthy, right? Like when we start messing up our conduct amongst one another, we also can tend to infect and mess with character as well. So that's the conduct of the fleet. But then there is the goal. What if this fleet has seaworthy ships And they don't bang into one another, but they reach New York and the destination was Calcutta. They failed in their mission. And so it takes all three parts of morality, character, conduct, and goals. John Frame, another ethicist, describes it as the triperspectival view of ethics. That's three perspectives on the same moral event. Is it ethical? The Westminster Confession says that good works are done with a heart purified by faith, that's character, in a right manner, that's conduct, and to a right end, that's goals. That is what makes something truly moral. Okay, I'm going to keep pounding it home, so let's just rebuild this again. All ethical things happen like a triangle. You could think of it like a triangle. You have character, uh, which would be your your ontology, that comes from the Greek word ontos, which talks about being, like who you are as a person. That is like one side of it. Then there's conduct, which is your man-to-man, how you're interacting with one another. And the Bible has a lot of you shall and you shall not. That's deontological. That comes from the Greek word day, which means one must, one ought. If you know it's an ought and you don't do it, you're disobeying in your conduct. Okay, that is your practice. So you've person practice, and then there's the, the other side of the triangle, which would be your t- 
teleological, coming from the Greek word telos, which is your goal. What is your end or your purpose? And that is that third P. So you could have practice, person, and purpose make up your character, conduct, and goals. All right? If you're not seeing it like a triangle, one last way of looking at it, and probably the best way, is a Venn diagram. Raise your hand if you know what a Venn diagram is. All right? For those of you who don't, maybe kids in the room, you're learning. That's circles, oftentimes seen as three circles, and they're different spheres, different circles that overlap in one area. Character, conduct, and goals. But where do those three meet? Where are all three involved? That's the sweet spot. That's the heart of a biblically moral thing. It's not just one-sided. It's not all about what we see. So let me give a concrete example for all you kids in the room. You're given a duty from your parents. Clean your room. That's the deontological. That's the must, the ought. You have a duty to clean your room. Now, let's say you actually do clean your room. You check that box of conduct. But the whole time you do it, young person, you are begrudging it in your heart. The whole time you're upset with mom and dad that you're not outside playing or that you're not able to play your video games. You're just not doing it with the right heart. That's what I'm talking about. It's not just what you should do. It's how you should be on the inside. What is your character? Or maybe you're a teenager and you still have the duty to clean your room and you hardly ever do it. But this time you check the box of conduct. You do clean your room. And you do it gladheartedly, like you're all excited about doing it. Oh, I'm going to clean this stuff and put it away and get all ready. But why were you doing it? Because your friend's coming over and you don't want them to think you're a slob. Your goal was not obedience to your parents. Now you checked the box and you did it with the right attitude along the way, but your purpose was off. Do you, do you see where all three of these can come into play? Character, conduct, and goals. Practice, person, and purpose. Now, conduct, that's the thing we legislate, right? We legislate conduct because it's something we can see. We make laws about what people do and don't do. It's objective. Is the duty or the law obeyed or not? You're probably not going to be punished necessarily because you had a bad attitude if you actually did the thing most of the time. But the point of this is in, in legal realities, conduct is legislated. But Christian ethics is more than just external behaviors. Because if conduct was all you looked at, you could tend towards legalism. Okay, did I check that box? Or even license. Like sometimes you could get away with doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And so you take freedom and you take liberty in even doing the so-called right thing. This was the case in Corban. I'm thinking of as an example for the Pharisees withholding some of what was due to, to honor their parents. They were doing something that looked right and checked a box, but they were taking license with the law. Another thing is you can't explain a lot of things in the Bible if you're only looking at conduct. Here, here let me give you a few examples. Murder versus capital punishment. 
The thing itself, the conduct, is the taking of someone's life. But why is murder uh, prohibited, but capital punishment actually uh, commanded in certain cases? Uh, There are things that are always um, wrong in character, conduct, and goals. The term murder has a conduct side, but the term adultery typically imports all three meanings, right? Uh, Adultery is often done by willful engagement, conduct, of a corrupt character, and with self-glorifying goals. So that would mean adultery fits all three just out of the gate. But in the Bible, premarital sex is condemned if it's consensual, but is not condemned in the case of something like rape. The conduct itself can't always be the thing. And then what do you do with eating meat sacrificed to idols? There are The conduct is the same, and in some cases it's allowed, and in other cases it's prohibited. Well, if the conduct is the same, let me give you a hint. It's either going to have to do with the character or the goals, or both. And if we think carefully, in that case, it's probably something about goals, because we hear Paul say something like, you know, some eat meat and others don't, but they're both doing it for what? The glory of God. He says they, they, they have the right purpose in their heart. So we can't always look at the thing. We can't always look at conduct. And I could go on, but I'm going to move on from here um, to one last one and then uh, further study. The last one I want to give an example of is Rahab or the Hebrew midwives. This is an example of where not telling the truth is not necessarily condemned. And we're going to study that later. The conduct itself alone is not what makes a moral event. So biblical ethics is, its its orientation is in the deontological, what you ought and ought not do. We have God's word. We're very clear on what scripture says, but it also takes into consideration the character and the goals. The Bible has a comprehensive picture of what it likes, what it looks like to be a whole person that lives your life with the right heart to the glory of God. Jesus, he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. They were fastidiously righteous in their conduct, but their hearts were rotten on the inside. And hopefully that just goes to further show us that we are all in need of a Savior. No one is righteous. We all fall short of a purpose to glorify God. So I hope that's been helpful as we think of this kind of bigger picture about ethics, and I'm going to bring some of it back in at the end when we finish our study of the ninth commandment. So let's turn now to studying the ninth commandment specifically. As I was preparing for this message, I came across a little tidbit in Kevin DeYoung's book on the Ten Commandments that was so fascinating to me. He, he drew out this, uh, this thing about how the first nine books of the Hebrew Bible would have all had a very memorable breaking of one of the commands. And uh, you think of Genesis, for example, Adam, he listened to Eve instead of putting God first. Eve listened to the serpent instead of having God's word first. They, they put another God before him, before Yahweh. Exodus, what do you think about if we're talking about the second commandment? The golden calf. 
it stands out as idolatry in the book of Exodus. In Leviticus chapter 24, there's a case of a blasphemer, one who misuses the name of the Lord, who is put to death in Leviticus 24. Numbers has someone put to death for breaking the Sabbath. In Numbers 15, you remember the guy's gathering sticks and things, and he's put to death for breaking the fourth commandment. Deuteronomy, in chapter 21, a son dishonors his parents, and the community is told to put him to death. Very severe punishment, but a memorable case of all these. Now, the order gets a little twisted up here when we go to Joshua, but there's a very famous incident in Joshua of stealing. Achan, Remember Achan? He stole and he was uh, devoured, you know, kind of whoosh, it's all gone. You're gone, Achan, and family and everybody. Then there's Judges, where there's lots of egregious sins happening. Uh, But toward the end, one of the ugliest things in all of Scripture is the abuse and murder of the Levite concubine that leads to even more bloodshed among the tribes of the Israelites. And so murder, sixth commandment. We've seen the eighth and the sixth, and then the seventh comes up. The next, you would think Joshua judges Ruth. That's the way in our English Bible, but the Hebrew Bible would have been Samuel. First and second Samuel would have been next. And Samuel's history, right? And there's a lot of history of David. And in particular, are you thinking of a sin that David committed? Adultery with Bathsheba in Samuel. And then you have uh, Kings that follows Samuel. And in first Kings, Uh, We were actually reading in this not too long ago in our Bible reading plan. You come up to Ahab, and he's coveting, in chapter 21, Naboth's vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, devises a plan to plant what? False witnesses against Naboth. I was actually going to read all of 1 Kings 21, 1 through 16. I'm going to let you do that at home. But that covers the last two commandments. Here is uh, Ahab coveting and Jezebel setting up false witnesses. And it resulted in Naboth being killed. He was innocent. And they set up for his uh, murder so that Ahab could go and take the field by force, basically. So just an interesting thing, if you think about, there are pretty memorable cases in each of the first books of the Bible of breaking of these commandments. I thought that was a helpful little tidbit. But here we are about the breaking of the ninth commandment, which is bearing false witness. And as is the case with the other commandments we've been studying, the thing forbidden is the worst form of lying or deception. Okay, this is as bad as it gets. The most heinous version of the related sins. Like all sexual immorality is bad. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but adultery tops the list, okay? And so the same is true in this case with bearing false witness. It can result in the innocent being punished. It can result in people losing their lives. And it can also literally overthrow the entire judicial system. I mean, think about it. In the Old Testament, they didn't have DNA tests. They didn't have video evidence. Okay, in the courtroom, it relied on the truthfulness of witnesses. So the entire judicial system of this covenant community could be overthrown 
by breaking this commandment. It was a severe breach of deception and aiming to harm one's neighbor. It also shows us how much God cares about justice. God cares about the truth in these settings. It matters to him. So, as is the case with the rest of the commands we've studied, there are other applications, but this being the most heinous, I want to give us that broad picture. But I thought instead of listing them like we did last week and kind of going point by point, I'd let you just jot some notes so you've got space in your um, notes that you have today to, to hear the broader application of sins uh, that are forbidden and then duties that are uh, enjoined to us. So first, there is the sin of giving false witness, which is in the command itself. But here's the thing, either for or against. Don't bear false witness against, the Bible says, but also don't bear false witness for somebody. Don't lie to get somebody off. I was thinking about this. Uh, if you, how many of you have siblings? Okay. If you have a sibling, there's probably an instance where you've done both, right? Like there's a time when you guys both did something wrong and you guys got thick as thieves and you lied for your sibling, right? But then there's probably times when you weren't feeling so kind towards your brother or sister and they were about to get in trouble and you knew the truth and either your mouth was shut or you flat out lied and got them in trouble, right? So you've probably experienced both sides of that, uh, giving false witness for or against. There is the sin of calling what is evil good or calling what is good evil. If we're going to be truthful, we need to call sin, sin. We don't need to uh, lie or deceive about what is true and what is good. Proverbs 17, verse 5. Look these verses up in your own time, okay? Proverbs 17, 5 for that sin. Obviously, there's the sin of lying. The sin of lying is forbidden in this command, and that is Colossians 3, 9. You could look that up in your time, or alternatively, you could conceal the truth. You could conceal the truth. I, I just think of like Ananias and Sapphira, as a famous biblical example of holding back the truth uh, in an instance where God obviously disapproved. Speaking the truth unseasonably, speaking the truth at the wrong time. We mentioned this earlier, um, how speaking the truth, like it could be done out of an incorrect motive or like lying could be done out of a correct motive, like Rahab and the Hebrew midwives. So I, I was remembering an I Love Lucy episode that I've seen before where uh, Lucy is telling a lot of little white lies, right? And Ricky and Fred and Ethel, they challenge her and say, I, I don't think you could go one day without, you know, telling a lie that you, could, you couldn't tell the truth for one whole day. And it kind of backfires on them because then Lucy goes around and she starts telling the truth about what she really thinks about everybody, and it gets really ugly. She tells the truth in an unseasonable way. This verse is worth looking at on the screen, okay? Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise person quietly holds it back. You don't have to say everything you're thinking just because it's true. Let me give you some marriage advice. You don't have to say 
everything you're thinking just because it's true. Let me give you some advice at work. You don't have to say everything you're thinking just because it's true. Allow me to give you some social media advice. You don't have to say everything you're thinking just because it's true. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says, God has set two natural fences to keep in the tongue. Two fences, the teeth and the lips. You've got two already, and this is a third. Think of the ninth commandment as a third fence for your mouth. Like, let's just watch our tongues, okay? That's a really neat uh, analogy. I like it. Two fences. You've got the teeth and the lips. Let's stop there. There is a sin next of perverting the truth or twisting the truth of what someone says into a wrong meaning. This happened to our Lord when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. But then at the trial, the false witnesses said that Jesus said, I am able to destroy this temple and build it in three days. Twisting somebody's words that were true into a falsehood. There's the sin of slander, the sin of backbiting. Slandering is evil. Thomas Watson, again, I've got a few just great quips from his book on the Ten Commandments. He says, the scorpion carries his poison in the tail, but the slanderer carries his poison in the tongue. We can do so much damage with our tongues. They didn't need the swords and clubs to take Jesus in his arrest. They needed scorpions with slander in their tongues to bear false witness against him. Slander, backbiting, these are forbidden. Sin, the sin of receiving a false report, receiving slander from someone. We should stop somebody if they're saying something that we can't verify and say, I, I don't know if I should hear what you're about to say because I don't know if that's true. Have you talked to so-and-so? Again, Watson says, he who raises a slander carries the devil in his tongue. He who receives a slander carries the devil in his ears. We are no worse if we will silently let somebody about somebody else, we need to refuse false reports and slander. The sin of flattery. I encourage you to go back and look up the message I preached on Psalm 12. Flattery, using our tongues to deceive by saying things that are maybe not what we believe to be true about a person just to get somewhere. Then there's the sin of exaggerating minor faults. Kevin DeYoung says that we are all impulsive exaggerators. How far we ran today, how much snow we shoveled, how big the fish was. Amen, brothers? We could go on and on. We are great at telling the story to make us the hero and others look bad. We are fantastic exaggerators. Then there's the sin of groundless suspicion. This is another good reminder for our day. Love believes all things. It thinks no evil. Like we need to get out of the mindset of assuming the worst in people's motives. Love believes the best. So let's not have groundless suspicion. Then there's the sin of gossip. The sin of gossip, spreading reports without having all the facts. Listen, this is a huge problem in our day, a huge problem on social media. We do 
mob justice on Twitter, instead of being patient and presuming somebody to be innocent until they're proven guilty. Listen, that is a biblical concept. We know that there are algorithms that prey on human nature, that loves to spread hate and fear, regardless of whether there's one ounce of truth in it. We will share, ignore the idea of setting the record straight, right? Like you get some salty reporter that tweets something and you share it right away because it fits the way you're thinking and then you fail to retweet the, the retraction because you know what? It doesn't really fit with the way I'm thinking or what I want other people to think. We need to be very, very cautious. Christians should be known for sharing things that are verifiably true. Uh, let me remind you again, Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. You don't have to comment or share everything you see because you have a visceral reaction that your flesh wants to affirm. People are far more likely to share those things immediately and not share the truth later. So let's just be a little more patient. Let's be more cautious in the way we use social media. And then there are the duties required. The duties required of this command, and that is to promote the truth. God is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth. The Holy Trinity is true, and Christians should be known and marked by the truth and promoting what is true. Secondly, we have a duty to speak the truth in matters of judgment and justice. This is the flip side of the don't bear false witness. When it comes time, especially in matters of justice, speak up and tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We ought to be true in our commitments. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. We have the duty to receive good reports. You know it to be true of someone and someone wants to share something positive? We ought to be receiving that with joy. And conversely, we have the duty to discourage talebearers, discourage flatterers, and discourage slanderers. We've mentioned that. We have a duty to keep our own lawful promises we have a duty to study, to practice, to think about things that are true, noble, and lovely. Philippians 4 and verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's a great verse to memorize. Put that on an index card and put it on your bathroom mirror. Let's think about true things, lovely things, noble things. Now, there's the sins of this command and the duties of this command. But before I conclude the message today, I want to bring some clarity to something that I already hinted at when we looked at the big picture question. I want to bring clarity about lying. All right, let me blow your mind for a moment. This commandment does not say, thou shalt not lie. It's just not what the commandment says. I'm proceeding with caution. I know it might seem like we're about to split hairs here, but it's important because I think it will reinforce the discussion we had 
about character, conduct, and goals. And I think it would pertain to some of you and what you do professionally. I mentioned that the Bible at times does not explicitly condemn not telling the truth. So David Jones gave a comprehensive list. Let me share this with you. The Hebrew midwives, Exodus 1, Rahab's lie. We've talked about those. Michael, David's wife, lied about David's escape. Jonathan lied about David's whereabouts. David lied about his mission in 1 Samuel 21. Samuel lied about his intentions in 1 Samuel 16. A spirit lied through false prophets. A spirit sent by God, by the way, lied through false prophets about Ahab's victory in warfare to trap him into being defeated. Then there are examples of lying in military contexts, including Joshua, Gideon, David, Elisha, and others. So the ninth commandment uses the example of courtroom perjury, bearing false witness against, to indicate that what is prohibited is malicious non-truth-telling, purposefully jeopardizing the truth with the intent of personally benefiting or with the intent of injuring others against your neighbor. J.I. Packer, who is a theologian I respect greatly, says, quote, men will tell malicious lies for a number of reasons, pride, avoiding exposure, furthering their self-interests, fear, revenge, conceit, fraud. These motives, did you hear that? Are prohibited in the ninth commandment because character and goals matter. Character and goals are part of what makes the thing itself moral, not only conduct. Again, John Frame, another ethicist, says the ninth commandment doesn't mandate truth in an abstract way, but in a concrete example of relationships between believers and neighbors. The sin of false witness is that of distorting the facts to harm one's neighbor. So malevolent, non-truth telling, or put in an easier way to understand, lying with bad motives is clearly sinful. Okay? I want everyone to hear me. But, but, just like killing can occur in different contexts. We talked about sexual intercourse in different contexts. So non-truth-telling in different contexts with different character and motives can make a difference. What makes a lie then something that breaks the, ten, the ninth commandment? Conduct for sure, but also character and goals. So this has led some ethicists to describe three types of non-truths. You ready for this? First, there is jocular lies, J-O-C-U-L-A-R. That means lies that are jokes or fiction. I'd throw in something like a surprise birthday party. Like, is Pastor Jason saying that you are breaking the ninth commandment if when you tell your wife, we're just going to a nice dinner of just the two of us, and then you've got a dozen friends to surprise her for her birthday party that you are lying maliciously. Of course not. And we all know that in our hearts because the motive and intention was not to deceive against. It's out of love to surprise and to make someone happy. Now, of course, if you know your wife isn't going to like it, well, maybe that's something different. But all that to say, there are things that are jocular lies. Now, let me add a 
caveat or like a warning here, Proverbs also says, don't just throw things around and then say, I was only joking. Like, don't use this as an out, okay? That's not what we're talking about. Saying I was only joking when you really intended something different, God knows your heart. Then there are lies of necessity. Lies of necessity, like in warfare, this is why I brought this up, or, or sports. So are you going to, you're, you're going to be the pitcher in the World Series, okay? There's home plate, here I am, righty pitcher, okay? I've got someone on first to say, hey, are, are you going to steal second or not? And is he obligated to say, yes, I am going to steal right now. And if he lies about it, is he breaking the ninth commandment? No, that is not. This is, this is part of the game. It's part of the fun of the sport. But also, similarly, there are those of you who serve or have served in the military. Again, this might seem nuanced, but I figure for some of you, this is an important consideration. I think we rightly commend Corey Ten Boom for hiding the Jews from the Nazis. We, we carry some of her biographies and some of her writing in our church library. When she hid them, I think she's in the line of the Hebrew midwives and Rahab. We have several examples like this, but quite the opposite from a motivation to harm her neighbor, she was motivated to help and love and serve her neighbor. And so this is why we can't simply look at conduct. And then there's the category of malicious lies with a capital M and a capital L. These are the serious things we've hinted at, perjury, slander, and all of the others we've discussed. The difference between these things is not that there was a non-truth involved. The difference is the other circles of the Venn diagram. That's why I pulled that question in today. I hope you now see it all put together. Now, this might be the first time you've come to church and had somebody share something like this with you. But Again, there's a helpful word here. The line between murder and capital punishment, that's very clear. The line between adultery and a married couple having sex, the conduct, that's really super clear. The line between stealing and borrowing, that's pretty clear. But the line between gossip and sharing a prayer request, not always as clear to us. So I think a word of caution in all that I've shared, let's be mindful that we don't abuse with our tongues. The tongues, our tongues, James says, are a restless evil. James chapter three and verse eight, no human can tame the tongue. A restless evil full of deadly poison. Believers probably break this commandment more than any other. That's just a guess, but that's a feeling I have this is one that you probably see. But listen, Christians need to be known for telling the truth. And the stakes in our world today are getting higher and higher and higher. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Paul says in Romans, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. The reason truth matters is because truth has been an issue since the fall of man. Genesis 3 and verse 1, 
The serpent was more crafty than any other beast that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? See the twist, just that little twist. Did God actually say you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? God not only hallows the whole sphere of language, think about it, God cares about language. But he actually thinks of it as an extension of who he is. The word became flesh. We're about to celebrate that. Aren't you excited in a couple weeks here? The word became flesh. Our words matter. God is present where his word is present. That's how important language and speech and true statements are. They reflect the character of God. We talked about moral laws. They reflect God's character. So we must speak true words and take great pains to tell the truth. So let me share with you the truest thing I know to say. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. If you haven't done so, put your faith in Jesus today. Because God never lies. And his word proved to be true. The prophets of old prophesied the coming of a baby born of a virgin to take away the sins of the world. Jesus fulfilled the law. We talked about that last week. Jesus came as the word made flesh, lived truly his life to the glory of God the Father. He did everything to please him, the right purpose, and he had the right character as well. It was not just his conduct, but his character and his goals he fulfilled the law. So put your faith in him and all he has done for you. His death on the cross. Listen, his death as a direct result of the breaking of the ninth commandment. False witnesses trumped up charges against him and away he went to die an unjust condemnation that results in the redemption of liars like me and like you. So put your faith and trust in him today.